In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Susan, would you check the pulpit microphone? It's not on. We have a concert here this afternoon, and often when uh, they're practicing, they uh, turn things off and unplug lights, so it takes us a little bit to recover and figure out what's been changed. Um, But I'm betting it's an easy thing to fix. (laughs) Okay, it is on, so something else is not on. I'll use this microphone. Never mind, thanks. I think you can hear with this microphone, probably. Um, yesterday, a, a former colleague of mine from Washington, D.C., um, was consecrated Bishop of Colorado, um, Kim Lucas is a remarkable person for a number of reasons, Um, all the reasons you would hope or think for a new bishop, Uh, preaching, pastoral care, prophetic witness, spirituality, all that stuff is there. But Kim is a woman. Kim is an African-American woman. She is a cancer survivor, and she's married to a white man, and together they have four beautiful children. If you think about that, for many, many reasons, none having to do with her spiritual, administrative, pastoral, or theological qualifications, um, the church through history would have, and in many places still does, deny her full participation in ministry. All along and today, people pull out of Holy Scripture uh, sentences or words or perspectives that perhaps meant one thing in their time and place. But given the ongoing revelation of God, the ongoing power of the resurrection, and the deep work of the Holy Spirit, these sentences and words and bits of Scripture here and there do not and cannot mean the same thing today. They simply don't. We could go through the list. Women ordained, there's scripture that denies that. Married people ordained, one can create a theology based on scripture here and there. People of mixed race getting married, have you read Exodus? A person with a medical condition being chosen as a religious leader, again, check Leviticus. A dark-skinned person being a leader? Again and again, one could find a scriptural text here or there to prohibit or justify just about anything one might want. And so how easily over time and currently people find scripture to justify those things about which they're most afraid or suspicious or even something that, for whatever reason, one may be uncomfortable with or simply dislike. If you should be in Washington, D.C. anytime before September 1st, I I encourage you to, to check out the Museum of the Bible. The museum has um, some problems, I think. It's, it's in a way the museum of the Bible as understood in the United States of America in the 20th century. Um, but it has some wonderful things as well. 
and through September 1st, it has um, an alarming and shocking exhibition entitled The Slave Bible. Originally published in London in 1807, this Bible was edited and printed by the Church of England for its missionaries on behalf of the Society for the Conversion of Negro Slaves. And so missionaries were equipped with this Bible of sorts. I say Bible in quotation marks because it was an addition. Going to the British colonies, they used this slave Bible to teach enslaved Africans how to read, to introduce them to the Christian faith. But unlike other missionary Bibles, the slave Bible had only parts of the Bible in it. It left out the Exodus story, as you might imagine, anything that could promote a vision of liberation or freedom. It left out anything that might suggest that God speaks to the person, that the Spirit moves within each of us to to lead us into the presence of Christ. And instead, you can imagine what it had lots of. Every possible scripture that reinforces a love of hierarchy, um, a support that one person is to be over another, on and on and on it went. I can guarantee you that the slave Bible did not include the reading we heard today from the Acts of the Apostles. I don't know where my friend, the now Right Reverend Bishop Lucas, is preaching today, but I would love to hear what she has to say about this reading from the Acts of the Apostles. In this morning's scripture, God's love turns out to look very different from what Peter had imagined or expected. Uh, Remember who Simon Peter was. He was devout and religious. He had deep roots in the Jerusalem establishment. The people there knew him and loved him. He had studied and learned his scriptures. He lived it with his life. He kept the commandments. And he kept all the dietary laws, those dietary laws that set Jews apart from others that had been handed down from generation to generation. They were as much cultural as they were religious. Everybody knew that the Messiah was a Jewish concept. The Messiah would come from within Judaism and save the Jews, God's chosen people. Jesus himself wrestled with this when he met the woman at the well. Remember, she was a foreigner. She was a Samaritan. When Peter returns from missionary activity where he has followed in the way of Jesus and spread the word to those outside the Jewish faith, he immediately faces criticism from the Jewish faithful who are there in Jerusalem, the somewhat more orthodox, more conservative, more traditional ones. They point out, Peter, you're reaching beyond Judaism. What is this? How can you be talking to the Gentiles about the Messiah? Remember, a Gentile is anyone who is not Jewish. Peter has been doing just that, preaching about the love of Jesus to the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, we could make a long list, the uneducated, those of different heritage, those of mixed blood, those who partake of all sorts of unspeakable practices. And yet Peter begins to tell his companions in Jerusalem how God has brought him to this new broad understanding of God's grace. He tells them about his vision or his dream. It's a weird one. 
He sees what looks like a big sheet lowered down from heaven. And in that sheet are all sorts of animals, four-footed things, beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. Remember, this is Peter who eats very carefully, who keeps all the dietary laws. And so he gets this vision from God and he hears a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Go and kill these things and eat them. This is beyond serving steak to a vegetarian. This is much more so because it's, it's violating all of the traditions and the customs and the, the years of observing the dietary laws that a good and faithfully religious person would have been doing. Peter says to himself, there's no way he can eat those things. It's against everything he believes in. And yet somehow the power of God's love overwhelms Peter. That voice comes again. Three times the voice comes. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. In other words, if God says it's good, then it's good enough. And so the very next thing that happens is that this new insight of Peter is put to the test as he encounters Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, a non-Jew, but it gets worse. Cornelius is a soldier, a soldier of the Roman army. He's an agent of the state. Cornelius is one of those who, on the whims of the emperor, might mow down an entire village of Jews and not look back. That's who God is calling Peter to convey the love of Christ with. But just as God has worked on Peter through a vision or a dream, God has worked on Cornelius to prepare him for such a time. And so Peter and Cornelius talk. Cornelius is converted, and then Cornelius and his whole household receive the Holy Spirit, and they're baptized. It's an amazing vision that comes to Peter. When Peter tells this vision, he's able to do it with the sort of force and passion that convinces those who hear him. And so it changes the whole course of the early Jesus movement. And so what does it say to us? Who have we proclaimed unclean, unworthy, uh, beyond the pale, outside the fold of who God calls us to encounter or to reach? Most of us probably think we're, we're fairly uh, liberal-minded, open people. But think about how that can be challenged when a new person shows up and marries into your family. Think about how that can be challenged when someone moves next door who's very different from you. On and on and on we can go, and perhaps our assumptions are challenged, maybe not as dramatically as Peter's, but they are nevertheless challenged. Some of you have heard me talk about uh, that term, cradle Episcopalians. You might hear it from time to time. You, usually what someone means when they say, I'm a cradle Episcopalian, it means that they were, they were born into the Episcopal Church. They were baptized early on. And, and most often it means they love this church. They love the Episcopal Church. They love the, the Anglican tradition, the Church of England, all of our customs and beliefs and traditions. Um, that's a good and worthy thing. But every once in a while, that term, cradle Episcopalian, is used to set people apart. It's to sort of say, I'm this and you'll never be. 
And sometimes it can be a stumbling block to those who might be for the first time looking at our particular branch of Christianity. As people of the Episcopal Church and the Anglican tradition, we love our words. We love our printed words and our spoken words and our memorized words. Are we open to someone who may have trouble with words? Are we open to someone who stammers when they read? Are we open to someone who has not been educated in the great gift of the the English tradition and the King James Bible and all that we have inherited? Some of you know I keep plugging away at learning Spanish. And Spanish is not the only language to learn. Of course not. If you're called to learn another language, then do it. You should. Um, But a lot of people in New York speak Spanish. I looked it up. A quarter of the people around here speak Spanish. Spanish Harlem is just north of us. If our church is to grow, we at least need to be able to recognize and say a few things in Spanish and Creole and German and everything else. So learn languages. Be open so that we, like Peter, can recognize Cornelius and those of his household when they're in our midst. Of course, in our own tradition, we felt the Holy Spirit moving us to do those things I talked about when I talked about my friend who's the new bishop. We ordain women as, as, as deacons and priests and bishops. We ordained people of good faith who may be lesbian or, or gay or bisexual or transgender or questioning or not real sure. We've been late to do so, but we ordain people who struggle with medical conditions. As my friend Kim was beginning the bishop process, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Many people would have imagined she would drop out of the process, or perhaps the search committee would very quietly say, now really, sweetie, is this a smart thing for you to do? (laughs) Instead, that never happened. And she posted videos when she would go for therapy. She talked about her process. If you think about it, what better person to be in the position of of speaking of the love and the healing power of God than someone who is struggling with that issue herself. Our church has often, and perhaps most years, marched in the the gay and lesbian and transgender, bisexual parade the last uh, Sunday in June. Um, This year will be a specially big year. It's the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, and it's World Pride in New York. Um, Our church has been on the ball. We're planning. And so um, this year, people who look at the official listings and read things will see that it's not only about the parties and the parade, but that the Church of Jesus Christ is showing up and opening our doors. On Tuesday of the last week in June, Bishop Mary Glasspool will be here to talk about her own faith, her own experience, and how she keeps that faith in a changing and challenging world. Not only is Bishop Mary one of the sharpest bishops in the church anywhere, and certainly one of the best preachers, um, she happens also to be the first open lesbian in the Anglican Communion. On Wednesday night of that week, we'll show a film. It's a, a documentary on the life of Father Michael Judge. Some of you will remember that name. Michael Judge was the Franciscan friar who was the chaplain to the, um, the fire department of New York, and he died in the catastrophe of 9-11. 
The documentary talks about his life as a, as a hero of, of um, an Irish-American ancestry of, of one of the gang and one of the guys and a beloved priest and friar. And then mentions, oh, and by the way, he always understood himself as gay and everybody who knew and loved him knew that too. <laughs> it's a lovely way of showing a person of deep and vibrant faith who perhaps would be denied all that he knew and excelled in in other parts of the church or our civilization. And so these are just a few things that our church will be doing to open the doors and and invite people in and try to follow in the way of Peter and the way of Jesus. This is not to say we confuse freedom with license. We're called to a particular way of life, a life of discipline and commitment. There are rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts, but we're guided by Holy Scripture. The gospel today continues with this image of Jesus with his disciples at the Last Supper. He has just washed their feet, and he's talking about what love looks like. On Monday, Thursday, we wash feet. It's, it's not always a very well-attended service, uh, partly because we wash feet. But we do it because Jesus did it and said, do it. And if you've never done it, I encourage you to start praying towards Maundy Thursday of next year. It's a powerful, powerful thing. The easy part is washing someone else's feet, I think. The difficult difficult part is having my own feet washed, of being served, of allowing another that ministry. But Jesus says this is what the new commandment looks like. It's a commandment of love and service. It's, it's not a commandment like a law, something one must do or there'll be a penalty. It's, it's more like a rule that practiced over time shows its worth. This new commandment of love through service is, is like a best practice. It's something that brings success emotionally and spiritually and socially. In today's scriptures, God surprises Peter and those early followers of Jesus by showing just how wide God's love and mercy are. Jesus surprises his friends and disciples by showing them how radical God's love may be. And so may the Holy Spirit continue to enable us to be part of the Jesus movement of witness and love and service that movement with the Holy Spirit that takes us up into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.